You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. So we're going to be looking at um, Matthew uh, just for a few Sundays and uh, focused on the first few stories in Matthew, which um, are uh, very familiar to most of us. Uh, My name is Bill Wartman, and I know at least a good number of you. Uh, but uh, I'm uh, married to Jenny, and we have four children, and now two grandchildren. Uh, and uh, I teach classics at Samford part-time, and then I am president of iPub, which uh, does not sell liquor, uh, but is uh, an um, institute for the public understanding of the Bible. And, and yes, the Liquor Association was deliberate, because we promote meaningful conversation about the Bible with the non-believing, and a lot of times that's sitting there with, you know, uh, some beer or wine glass or coffee or whatever uh, they'll drink. And uh, we do a podcast uh, where a good friend of mine who's an atheist, former Christian, now an atheist. I'm a former atheist, now a Christian. And so we interview people about the things that divide us. Uh, We spend a lot of time going to atheist conventions uh, where I give away free glass mugs. And then people want to talk to me. (laughs) They not uh, although you'd be surprised how many people are very interested in the Bible um, when they disagree with it. <laughs> Apathy is the worst evil of all, <laughs> and distraction, which are two bigger sins sometimes than uh, opposition. So, uh, the um, uh, I'm from Minnesota, a land of ten thousand lakes and a thousand fish, um, where uh, summer is three weeks of bad hockey. Uh, but we've lived here since 2000 and thoroughly enjoy it. Uh, the um, I'd like to make it as casual as possible for you to respond, so I'm going to ask some questions, and you're going to feel free to respond, I hope. There'll probably be a little less of that today as we set some things up, and a little more of it next week and the following week if you come back. Uh, anytime you open the floor, you have verbal um, hares and verbal tortoises right? Verbal cheetahs. And they don't, there's not enough time for them to get everything out of their head that they want to share with the world, okay? Uh, this would be a good time for you to hold back a little bit. You know, you say one thing and then, then you just step back and then you wait and let someone else say something. Uh, so I say that now because I have no idea who most of you are. <laughs> and so I can say that not stepping on any toes. Um, <clears throat> The opening chapters of Matthew, of course, are familiar to us primarily from from Christmas. We've all heard these stories many times since we were little from Christmas, but uh, Christmas as an annual celebration did not happen historically until the 300s, until 4th century AD, uh, probably. Not till that late. So we really uh, really can't look to um, Christmas. Here's a sheet for you. Just coming in. We really can't uh, look, we can't assume that these stories were written for uh, Christmas. Let's put these here for now. Um, And uh, obviously Matthew didn't sit down and say, you know, I'd really like to write some great Christmas stories. And then he wrote Matthew chapters 1 to 2. So that leaves open the question, then what did he write it for? What was his aim? What was his main message as he went from uh, story to story? So uh, that's what we're going to be looking at. And the biggest challenge to us is uh, in trying to see what his purpose was is in the um, 
familiarity of the stories, right? Familiarity breeds contempt, as they say. So we already feel like we know the story, right? If I, if I started to read about how Joseph here in chapter 1, I mentioned to the people who were already in here that it would help a lot to have the Bible with you, and you have it on your phone at least, hopefully, so you can pull it out. But if nothing else, it'll help you in future Sundays. But in Matthew chapter 1, where uh, Joseph, uh, an angel appears to Joseph in a dream and tells him not to divorce Mary, but to take her. And he says, uh, uh, she has conceived, uh, in verse 20, uh, it, what she has conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus. And then the next verse says, this all took place to fulfill what the Lord has spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Jesus. Oh, wait. That's not what it says. It says they shall call his name Emmanuel. Well, if the prophecy said his name was going to be Emmanuel, why didn't the angel say to Joseph to name him Emmanuel? Why give him a different name? And then claim that it fulfills a prophecy in which it's a different name. Why would you do that? So that's one question I have. I have a couple more. All right. Um, this bit about the star. The Magi see a star. Wonderful, isn't it? It's lovely. It's, they see this star, and it leads them to Jerusalem, right? And um, why did the angel use, excuse me, why did God use a star to lead them to the birth of Jesus? Why would God use a star? I mean, I guess Magi did some, did some astronomy, but they also did a lot of astrology, right? And that's what God used. But you might think, well, okay, they're magi, so they get a, a star, because they study the stars. But if you read in verse 12, it says, this is after they've worshipped Jesus, it says, being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. So an angel appears to them in a dream and warns them expressly, not to go back to Jerusalem. Well, why didn't God just appear to them in the first place in a dream and tell them to go to Jerusalem for the birth of the king? And actually, this creates a big problem. Let me explain the problem, but let me be clear. I have no doubt Scripture is God-breathed, which means that uh, when we interact with Scripture, it imparts a real, authentic spiritual, eternal life to those who read it, listen to it, and obey it. It's an allusion, right, to the creation of Adam, to say Scripture is God-breathed, as it says in 2 Timothy. It also means that if God spoke to us today, we believe that if he peeled back the roof and spoke to us, he would say nothing different, nothing contradictory from what he has already said in Scripture. So the question here isn't that I'm raising isn't actually, I don't mean in any way to question God. There's sheets right here, Gil, on there if you want it. It's, a, it's just an honest question about how to understand what God was doing. What is God up to? So if I ask, why did God use a star on one occasion to communicate to the Magi, and on another occasion uses a dream, as he had done with Joseph multiple times in these first opening chapters? Why this one time does he use a star? But here's the problem. The star didn't actually tell him where to go. 
they knew that the uh, king of the Jews was born. And they came to Jerusalem and they asked the, uh, uh, of Herod, where is the king of the Jews to be born? They don't know where he's to be born. They came to Jerusalem because it was the logical place to go. That's where the temple is. That's where the Sanhedrin is. That's where Herod, who of course is the king of the Jews, resides. And you say, well, why, that, why is that such a big deal? Because of this. If God had sent them a dream and told them, go to Bethlehem, where the king of the Jews was born, Herod would never have known about this story. And Herod would never have ascertained the information he did from the Magi. And Herod never would have slaughtered the children. If God only had appeared to them in a dream in Mesopotamia and told them to go straight to Bethlehem, the children would have been alive. So these aren't just intellectual, fun-type questions. We're trying to figure out, what is God doing? Why is he doing it the way he's doing it? What are his purposes? What are his aims? And what does it tell us about him and about the gospel. Uh, there are other questions I have about these early stories, but the point is that things like this, Jesus supposedly going to get the name Emmanuel, and then he gets the name Jesus. The, and then this thing, a bit about the star, why does God do things this way? These, I think, are fair questions that we can ponder. We will definitely take them up, less today so much and more uh, next week, uh, to try and figure out what God is up to. Uh, so, uh, the Gospels, just to sort of have a setup uh, for our discussion uh, next week of the first two stories, uh, the Gospels feel often like a very meandering uh, historical narrative. Jesus heals somebody, and then he tells a couple of parables, and then he gets challenged by the Pharisees, and then he heals somebody else, and then he heals somebody else, and he may even heal a third person. And then there's well, two more parables and some teaching, and then he gets challenged, and then he has a conversation with the disciples, and then he tells another parable, and then he tell, has a few more miracles. He heals some people. Uh, oh, oh, there's the Mount of Transfiguration. Woo! That's a little different. He doesn't do that multiple times. And then we just keep going, oh, more parables, more miracles. And it all feels so meandering. It feels... As if, it was, as if Uncle Joe was talking at Thanksgiving uh, about his uh, days in the Navy. Not that they're not interesting or relevant, but that, uh, where is he going with this again? So, um, I don't think the Gospels actually were written that way. I just think it's the way they uh, feel. So, what I'm going to try and show you is how Matthew, for our purposes anyway today, was definitely not written that way. Okay, so we're going to try and take up just briefly, how Matthew uh, is ordered, and then how the early chapters are ordered, how they're arranged, the stories in them, and then next week we'll have the stage set to come back and talk a little bit about what God was up to in these first stories. So the first verse of Matthew, the book of the beginning, excuse me, of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, and this, of course, 
is uh, the, um, the word genealogy can mean birth, but anyway, uh, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, son of David, son of Abraham. And uh, we read about the background, the historical background to Jesus, verse uh, 17, or I should, let me just say this for a moment. It begins with a reference to David and then to Abraham. You got that in your head? Don't forget it now. Matthew told that right away. He said that first thing he said to you. So don't forget it. The genealogy that follows is, of course, starting with Abraham. <laughs> you remember him? He came from Mesopotamia, and God planted him in the land of Canaan, in the Promised Land. And then it goes down to David in verse uh, 6, David the king, verse 5, excuse me, down to David the king. And then it says in verse 12, uh, uh, or verse 11, the end of it, Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. Oh, so Abraham's family goes back to Mesopotamia. That's where he came from. And now they're going back to Mesopotamia. And then we get a bunch of names without any kings. And then we're told about the birth of Jesus. And it fulfills this prophecy about uh, uh, the virgin. Look at verse um, 20. As he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David. You haven't forgotten that this is the family of David and Abraham, have you? And the prophecy, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. To whom was that spoken? It's so famous, everybody must know who it was spoken to, right? It was spoken to the house of David in Isaiah chapter 7. It was about a virgin conceiving. It was a supernatural birth, isn't it? It's extraordinary. There's a couple stories about supernatural birth in the Bible. There's one very famous one, the first one, involving Abraham. Do you remember that? He had a, there was a supernatural birth there too with Isaac. Uh, but the birth of the Messiah is at an altogether different level. It's not just two old people who are infertile. There is no man involved at all. That's a higher level, no matter how you slice it. Uh, and then the next story, the Magi come, they want to know where the Messiah was born. And they, the Sanhedrin meets and they quote from the prophet Micah, and they tell them the Messiah is born where? Bethlehem. And why is the Messiah born in Bethlehem? Because of the prophecy. Because of the prophecy of Micah, yeah. But who was born in Bethlehem? David. David was born in Bethlehem. Okay? David grew up in uh, Bethlehem, of course. So there's another story about David. And then these Magi, where do they come from again? Anyone want to remind me where the Magi come from? Mesopotamia. Well, that's interesting. That's the place that Abraham originally came from. Now, how about the story of the baptism? When you get to chapter 3, verse 1, uh, it says, In those days John the Baptist came preaching. It's very interesting how Luke tells this story. Uh, not Luke. Well, that's interesting too. But Matthew, of course. Uh, Matthew tells you two things, or rather fails to tell you two things. Luke does. Luke tells you the exact year of the baptism. He says it was in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius. He then tells you how old Jesus is. He's been telling you some birth stories as well. Then he tells you how old Jesus is, about 30 years old at his baptism. 
Matthew does not tell you how old Jesus is. And as you begin the chapter, it says not what the specific year was. It says, in those days. In what days? What would in those days mean after chapter 2? It would mean after the days when the Magi came to worship Jesus and then Herod flew in a rage and slaughtered the children and Jesus and his family fled to Judea, uh, excuse me, Egypt for a little while and then came back to Galilee and lived in Nazareth. And in those, but he was still a child, wasn't he? And then Matthew says, in those days. That is to say, Matthew is doing a, is doing a lot of work to connect what comes in chapter 3 to what just happened in chapter 2. And you're going to say, well, what's two and a half decades separate those events? Why would you join them together? And is that even fair? Well, of course it is, you know. I mean, I was born in the latter half, in the late 20th century. That's when I was born, in the late 20th century. And I was in college in the late 20th century as well. And in those days, you see, it was very different, wasn't it? It was very different. And I can connect my birth and my college days, both as in the late 20th century, and speak of them as different times from the times we live in, and I can connect things in those days together. Because they're sort of far off from the days we're in now. And this is what Matthew's doing. In other words, when he gets to the baptism, he, he wants to connect it back with all this stuff that happened at the birth. That's good storytelling. He's trying to put all that together. All right, and then he tells you, uh, you have to get baptized. And some Pharisees and Sadducees come, verse uh, 7. And what does uh, he say to them? He says in uh, verse uh, uh, 9, I think it's verse 9. I'm right on the edge, you know, of reading glasses, and I'm in denial. So I don't, can't, can't even see the verse. I think it's verse 9. And do not presume to say, or is, is that right, verse 9? Yeah. To yourselves teamwork here. We have Abraham as our father. Well, that's very interesting. Another reference to Abraham. But you haven't forgotten, have you, that the families of the house of David and Abraham are really important when you talk about the beginning of the days of the Messiah. In fact, you're not going to understand very much about those days if you don't know something about the house of Abraham and the house of David. And that, of course, presents a problem if you're not reading your Old Testament very much. <laughs> okay, so um, anyway, you then get a set of stories about the baptism and some other things. We'll come back to them uh, in a minute. And then it goes into uh, the Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5, 6, and 7. And then it ends in verse 28 where it says, and when, this is chapter 7, verse 28, and when Jesus finished these sayings, okay, there follows some more stories in chapter 8, chapter 9, and then in chapter 10, you get teaching again, like the Sermon on the Mount, you know, you get more teaching. You had stories, what we call narrative, and then you had some clustered teaching. And at the end of chapter 10, it ends the teaching. And look at what it says in chapter 11, verse 1, when Jesus had finished instructing his disciples. 
and you get another set of narrative stories. And in chapter 13, that ends with teaching. You have some teaching, the, the famous parables of the kingdom of God. And that ends in verse uh, 52. And in verse 53, what does it say? And when Jesus had finished these parables. And then you get, you want to guess? Narrative. Uh, and that goes all the way to chapter 19, or chapter 18. Chapter 18 is some extended teaching. And then chapter 19, verse 1 starts out, Now when Jesus had finished. And then you get narrative. And then you get some teaching, chapters 24 and 25. And chapter 26, verse 1 Starts out, someone want to read it? Someone want to guess? <laughs> when Jesus had finished. And now you see the purpose of this sheet of paper. It's very simple. This little top chart here. If you want to know how Matthew wrote his gospel, he wrote it into six pieces. Each one, at the end of it, there's a little statement that transitions you into the next section. And it all is the little literary road sign, the little sign that says, okay, you can take a breath now. And if you want to take a break, come back tomorrow and read the next section. That's fine. In other words, if you're going to read Matthew, my recommendation is that you read it the way he wrote it. Read it in the six pieces he wrote it in. Okay? There's a reason he divided it into these six pieces. Uh, Each of the six pieces have their own little themes in them. And the overall story is progressing, yes, but there's a little theme. So let's just take a look, a very quick look, at the very last statements of... So I'm looking at this top chart here, and I'm going to say, well, there's six parts, so I guess the halfway part is after the first three sections, right? It's the last part. Uh, and the very last statements, chapter, verses 49 to 51, they're the last sentences of this section, section three. It's the end of the first half of the book. And you, I'm just going to now read what's on the chart here. These are, these are uh, my translation, whatever. Uh, but so shall, it, uh, so shall it be in the end of the age. Jesus is talking about the end of the age. He hasn't yet talked about the end of the age in the first half of the book. Not till this point. Every scribe who has been made a disciple of the kingdom of heaven. And you know, that's the first place that word turns up in the whole of the gospel, to have been made a disciple. So he's talking about the end of the ages and about making disciples. Now look at the end of the second half of the book, the very final sentences of the gospel. It says, "Go." I think you know these verses, go therefore and make disciples. Wow, there it is again. Uh, lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. And there's that exact same expression again. So apparently, uh, the climax of the gospel has to do with making disciples and the end of history. The two are related, aren't they? I hope you're not just living for tomorrow. 
That wouldn't be very smart. I mean, even in earthly terms, that would be very foolish. It would also be very foolish if you lived now for your, what, your 40s, your 50s, your 60s? That's the plan? Or do your goals have the end? The word end here is the word consummation. If history has a consummation, it means it had a goal. (laughs) Are we working toward that same goal, all of us, together? Is that our chief value in life? Or have we put other goals on the horizon and displaced that primary goal? I don't know when this ends. Is it? What does it exactly end? Ten. At ten fifty. Okay. All right. If you have to go, don't just go. Don't worry. Um, all right. So, um, <clears throat> so let's go back to uh, chapter one, and uh, you can um, see uh, over here. You have. Um, you have the bottom chart, you see? Yeah, the bottom chart. And you can see that's chapters 1 and 2, one and two, 3 and 4. So the left column is chapters 1 and 2. The right column is chapters 3 and 4. Okay? And all I did was just list out the stories like a table of contents in a book. So you have uh, the genealogy first, and then the birth of Jesus, chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. You see that? And then the story of the... Magi, and so on. And then in chapter 3, you get the ministry of John the Baptizer at the beginning, and then uh, the baptism and the temptation and so on. And what I'd like to point out is how carefully these are ordered. First of all, Matthew has chosen to tell us eight stories. There are eight. Secondly, each of the two parts, chapters 1 to 2 versus chapters 3 to 4, Each of the two parts focus on one major epic event. The first two chapters are focused on the birth of Christ. And the second two chapters are, uh, the third chapters three and four, focused on the baptism. Two epic events at the beginning. And uh, it just so happens that when you list out the stories, those two events in both cases, are the second stories. Right? So if the first four of the first four stories, the birth is the second story. And of the next four stories, the baptism is the second story. And if I asked you, what's the story that precedes the baptism of Jesus? That's the second column over here, right? That story is uh, the ministry of John the Baptist. And what was his, what, what did he do? According to the quotation from Isaiah, he was to prepare the way. That is, John the Baptist's story is preparing for the baptism of Jesus. Now, what about the story that precedes the birth of Jesus? Well, that's the genealogy. Well, what's that about? Yes, that is the long history of the families of Abraham and David that prepared the way. 
for the birth of Messiah. It's preparations and God getting ready. Now, how about the visit of the Magi? What's that about? Well, that's the response to the birth of Jesus, isn't it? It's a response. And how about Herod's slaughter of the children and Jesus and his family fleeing to Egypt? What's that? That's also the response. The Magi, of course, are Gentiles. What's the response of Gentiles? And then there's the response of King Herod. He is the king of the Jews. And you get the response of the Jews. Uh, now, one final thing, just to tease you, since we have two minutes left, 90 seconds. Look, if you will, this way. Go back and forth, this way. So let's take um, the first story. The birth, uh, the preparation across history, the genealogy. The whole, it was absolutely crucial that Jesus be born as a physical descendant of Abraham, right? If he wasn't born as a physical descendant of Abraham, he wouldn't be in the family of Abraham and would be disqualified from the promises God made about Messiah. It's absolutely crucial he had to have real physical descent from Abraham. But now go over to the story of the baptism with John. And what does he say to the Pharisees and Sadducees? Don't begin to think that just because you have physical descent from Abraham, that that is relevant to being saved from the wrath of God. And how about the story, the third story? The Magi come for what purpose? What's their goal? to worship Jesus. And Herod wants to challenge and disrupt the worship of the Messiah. Okay? Now go over to the right column, straight across to the temptation. What does the devil say to Jesus when he brings him up to the mountain? He says, if you worship me, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the earth and their glory. And the king was being challenged, wasn't he? About worship. The battle of the kings, you might call it. Herod versus Jesus the child and the devil versus the grown-up Messiah. Well, it can't be a total accident, all this stuff. Have I made my case? This doesn't feel very meandering to me. This seems like a highly sophisticated, very carefully told story that is put, putting out ideas, events that really happened, but then letting the images of those events and the meaning of those events sink in and inviting you to compare and contrast them and to ponder their relationships. And so we'll start to do that with a little bit more narrow focus, just one or two stories next week, okay? That will be the goal. All right, do we pray or anything at the end? Yeah, okay. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that we would take the yoke that the Lord spoke of in the middle of this book upon ourselves and trust him and learn from him and become disciples 
and then get into the business of making disciples. In his precious name we, pl- we pray. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us for one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.